Good morning, Apostles. Continuing uh, the series in 1 Peter. We're beginning chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Therefore, because Christ suffered in the flesh, and because the one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin, you also must arm yourselves with the same resolve for a clear purpose, specifically, to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for disordered human desires, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed was sufficient to do what the hostages of the bogus world system are inclined to do, going along with the sensuality, disordered desires, drunken orgies, carousing, and wanton idolatries. They are surprised when you do not go along with them in the same flood of time-wasting, dehumanizing pursuits. So they slander you. They will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached to those who are dead, so that those who were judged by human criteria in the flesh may live in the Spirit by God's criteria. Now the consummation draws near. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep steady in your love for one another, being hospitable to one another without grumbling, because love covers a multitude of sins. Just as each one has received a gift, use it for serving one another as good stewards of the diverse grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as the oracles of God. If anyone serves, let it be by the strength that God provides." So that in all things God will be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom is the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I am grateful for the opportunity to preach on this theologically rich and challenging biblical text during these historically weird and unsettling times. In one sense, I feel I have been preparing for a cataclysmic cultural moment such as this all my life. I was raised by parents who grew up in the Great Depression, and then they had their young adult lives upended and their best laid plans suspended by World War II. Those formative life experiences shaped my parents and also shaped the way they raised me. To borrow a phrase from a Lynn Anderson song that was appropriated for a famous 1973 U.S. Marine recruiting commercial, my parents never promised me a rose garden. They constantly reminded me that life is supposed to be hard. They told me each and every day, stop whining, put on your boots, and saddle up for a rough ride. They did the best they could do to toughen me up, because the world was commonly understood to be a dangerous and difficult place. They did not have much raw material to work with in me, but I do thank them for the gravel in my gut and the spit in my eye as Johnny Cash beautifully put it in A Boy Named Sue. Beginning with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was the actual brink of nuclear war, kids of my generation thought it was normal when our teachers made us practice ducking and covering under our school desks to prepare for a seemingly inevitable nuclear attack. I distinctly remember hearing the civil air defense sirens in Houston, Texas, uh, being Uh, tested every Friday at noon, and I had a recurring dream that I was 
uh, a lad standing on the shepherd bridge watching a mushroom cloud over my hometown. From the age of eight or nine, I just assumed that if the Russians did not drop the big one before I finished high school, I would someday go to war to fight for freedom in Southeast Asia the way my dad had gone to war to fight for freedom in the South Pacific. As it turned out, the Vietnam War ended before my time came to serve. A relatively few years later, the Soviet Union suddenly collapsed. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was no longer the immediate existential threat of nuclear Armageddon. Thanks to the sacrifice of so many others, I have been blessed to live and work and raise my kids during a strange time of unprecedented relative peace and prosperity. In sharp contrast to World War II or even the debacle in Vietnam, the horrific events of 9-11 and the ensuing seemingly endless wars that followed hardly impacted the day-to-day lives of most Americans, uh, including me. Today, all of our lives are being disrupted by current events as evidenced by the fact that I am preaching in an empty room to a congregation that is geographically and temporally remote. It could just be that my post-middle-aged man's wild imagination matches the wild hairs that grow in my post-middle-aged man's ears. But I think some harder times may be coming. I now have an immense sense of urgency to help prepare my grandkids for whatever lies ahead. Just so happens that a careful reading of 1 Peter is a good place to start on such a project. 1 Peter is a letter from a broken and redeemed man, a mediocre uh, fisherman who became an outstanding follower of Jesus, a fearless leader who was about to die in Rome at the hands of Nero. This is a letter to followers of Jesus who are beginning to pay a price to suffer for their faith. I can say a lot about each and every verse in our passage today, but I'm going to focus on the first two verses of chapter 4. Therefore, because Christ suffered in the flesh, and because the one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin, you also must arm yourselves with the same resolve for a clear purpose, specifically to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for disordered human desires, but for the will of God. Before I unpack this mission statement, I will set the stage with a few theological observations about the reality of human suffering in God's creation. Observation number one, God's creative purpose for human beings is shalom through love. We were not created to suffer and die. Observation number two, the shalom of creation was vandalized by rebellion. Shalom was contingent on unbroken communion between God and people. We turned our backs on God, and we transformed God's good creation into a bogus world system marked by pride, violence, suffering, and death. Observation number three. On a macro level, there is a direct causal nexus between human sin and human suffering. However, on a personal level, there often is no causal connection between a particular person's sin and a particular person's suffering. In our fallen and rebellious world, innocent people often suffer for no good reason. The beautiful patience of Texas Children's Hospital are evidence of that lamentable real-world fact. When Jesus wept 
at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He was weeping in response to the whole sorry syndrome of sin, suffering, and death that marks our fallen world. Observation number four. God's answer to human suffering is Jesus. How is Jesus the answer? This, of course, is the good news, the gospel. The eternal Lagos, Christ himself became flesh and blood. During his relatively brief public life, he stood with and acted for those who suffered. He did this by healing disease, by casting out demons, by feeding the hungry, and by loving those who were generally understood to be completely unlovable. Ultimately, he fought the decisive battle against pride and violence by humbling himself to the point of death on a Roman cross. To quote the great Robert Earl Keene, he did it all for love, my friend. For love, he did it all. Peter summarizes this good news succinctly. Quote, the one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. Close quote. In context, the one who has suffered refers to Jesus. Jesus suffered in the flesh, and by suffering in the flesh, he is, quote, done with sin. Close quote. When Peter says Jesus is done with sin, he is telling us that Jesus has done what had to be done to set us free from sin and to lay the foundation for the restoration of shalom on a cosmic scale. How then should we respond to such good news? According to Peter, we must, quote, arm ourselves with the same purposeful resolve that motivated and sustained Jesus. I probably should have given you a trigger warning before I quoted Peter's military metaphor. But the fact is, we are in a battle and we have to arm ourselves. We live between the D-Day of the cross and resurrection and the V-Day of the full consummation of the shalom of God's new creation project. We look forward to the day when God will wipe away every tear, when death, grieving, and pain will be no more, but that is not today. Until that day, we have to make a basic choice every day between two mutually exclusive options. The first option is to go along with the disordered desires of the bogus world system, to focus on our narrow interest and to ignore the needs of others, to love things and use people, to pile up treasure on earth where thieves steal, moths consume, rust destroys, and governments confiscate. To fall into the human default position of so-called self-realization through self-absorption, self-promotion, self-indulgence, and self-righteousness. This is the path of least resistance, and it requires no resolve. For me to follow this path, to quote Buck Owens, all I have to do is act naturally. The second option is to surrender our lives each day to the loving purpose of God, to imitate the self-giving love of God expressed most clearly in Jesus. That, of course, is the only viable option for people who have tasted the goodness and grace of God. Beginning in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Peter offers some practical insight into our daily surrender to God's will. The first practical insight is that time is of the essence because the consummation is near. The word here for consummation is telos, which connotes God's purpose and goal for everything. Time is always a scarce commodity in this world. Each one of us has a limited number of days in the flesh, in these frail bodies of muscle, blood, and bone. God gives us the gift of time for a specific purpose. 
and we do not have any time to waste. Second, God's purpose for us is love, expressed in practical acts of hospitality. The word we translate as hospitality is a combination of two Greek words, philos, which means friendship, and xenos, which means stranger. One of the defining moments in our church's life together was when our brand new pastor and a few key leaders made a reckless, spontaneous decision to maneuver a caravan of sport utility vehicles through Harvey's high floodwaters to the George R. Brown Convention Center to offer shelter, food, and clothing to complete strangers, our displaced neighbors. The folks who were part of that project will tell you it was among the most joyful endeavors uh, they ever had the privilege of undertaking. Uh, I was talking to one uh, of my friends last night who related a conversation she had with a child who uh, had been uh, uh, driven uh, to our church facility away from George R. Brown Convention Center uh, and offered uh, new clothes and good food. The, the child said uh, to my friend, this place is a lot nicer than Mr. Brown's place. Note, of course, that we are called the hospitality like that without grumbling. There may be no bigger waste of precious time than grumbling. Finally, the third practical insight is before anybody is tempted to waste one single minute patting himself on the back, Peter reminds us that the only way for us to live with purposeful resolve in hard times is to allow God to live through us, to ask him to speak through us, to uh, serve by the strength that he provides. That type of surrender is impossible without a daily discipline of prayer. Start each day by telling God, thank you and yes, and by asking for his strength to live that day as an agent of his love. Let us pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who suffered to defeat the powers of sin and death. Fill us today with your spirit for radical, joyful acts of hospitality to our neighbors in this season of anxiety, mistrust, masking, and so-called social distancing. Speak through us and give us your strength to serve. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our champion. Amen.